All right, welcome, Steve. Uh, thanks for being on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to this conversation because thinking back on uh, the few years that we worked together, we always had a lot of interesting conversations, and I found you to be a very pragmatic security leader. Sure. Thank you for having me, Rizam. It's nice, nice to catch up. This should be fun. Before we get into a bunch of cool topics around security breaches and hacking and all that good stuff, um, could you give the audience a little background about yourself and kind of uh, how you got into security? Um, yeah, sure. <clears throat> Sorry, I've been a little sick. Um, so currently, I'm a cybersecurity manager. I have a medium amount of seniority and I work for a national retail company at the moment, and I'm mostly concerned, like all cybersecurity professionals, with uh, sensitive data and fraud. And in our case, it's really customer and staff privacy. So um, previously, I've worked in e-commerce and also online banking, kind of in similar software security slash security management roles day-to-day uh, -to -day, i'm i'm a program manager and i'm a risk manager and i work with our it guys doing vulnerability management all three of those are distinct but important functions in cybersecurity. and i'm also by default our security architect because we have a fairly small small team at my company and as a side gig, I teach a couple times a year, part-time at BCIT, doing cybersecurity fundamentals for about 20 students a time. And historically, I've been a computer geek going back to as long as home computers have existed, but again, kind of middle of the road. Compared to the general public, I am very geeky. But once you get into groups of computer guys, I am like, you know, barely, barely register as a computer geek with those guys. But uh, I was lucky my dad was an engineer. So from childhood, we've had old cast off computers sitting around at home with uh, AutoCAD and DOS and King's Quest and that sort of stuff going on. So I've been very familiar with technology my whole life, but it wasn't until after I finished university that... I figured out it could be a career and that kind of was aligned with me having to pay some bills for the first time ever. So, um, after university, I went to Toronto for a couple of years just to have some fun and meet, meet up with friends that I knew from school here. And one of my friends got me a job doing it projects. So they were basically hardware and software refreshes and a bit of uh, service calls for the big, the big Canadian banks in Toronto. And I met some people working at the banks who kind of introduced me to enterprise IT versus like living room IT. And I just really found it interesting and well-paying and had some great mentors who kind of put me on, on my career track. So that went on for about 10 years and I was then an IT manager and I was getting really tired of just rebooting servers all day. And I decided I wanted something a little more specialized and interesting than just doing IT management. 
not that I have any disrespect for IT managers. It is a tough, tough job and often very thankless. But um, I saw computer crime was just booming, like credit card fraud, like most people didn't even have routers at home. Their computers were just exposed directly to the internet and just tons of malware, tons of computer crime, tons of fraud, and not many companies being capable to do anything about it. And just some of my first university education was economics, and I could see that there's just a huge opportunity for people like me that have computer skills and also understand economics and crime and international relations. So I pivoted, I started studying for my CISSP and got that in 2010. And that just opened my eyes to how little I actually knew about technology and computers. So I went back to university again and studied computer science for a couple of years. And ever since then, I've been fairly gainfully employed in either software or just general security for various organizations. Had some great jobs and some great colleagues. And that kind of brings us up to date to when you and I met at our previous job. So yeah, since then we've both moved on, but still kind of doing the same things, trying to create secure products and secure outcomes for our customers and colleagues. Any questions on that or? No, that's awesome. I, I was gonna say you had a pretty good foresight there in uh, I guess pre-2010 to to pick security because it seems like, I remember one of the major security incidences probably three jobs ago where it was, uh, you know, well, I didn't work there, but I remember Home Depot when Home Depot kind of got hacked and there was some security data breaches there. And then some of the retailers, it was like one a year you would hear, right? But now it feels like mm. one a month or one a day. <laughs> one a day, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that, that Target and Home Depot occurred when I was kind of a junior security guy. So I was working as security analyst. I was just starting to teach at BCIT and, and those, that seems like a long time ago. And in technology terms, 10 years is a long time ago, but I, I remember it quite clearly because they were significant events. And some of the first events I really was able to do some analysis of and start to start to understand it and what could have been done differently and what my organization can do differently to not have the same outcomes that Home Depot and Target did, which were to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars and C-level people not working there anymore. So. Right. That's when I do remember when I think their CIOs, I don't know if it was Target CIO or both that quit um, or, you know, were given the shown the door out. Uh, but it really, I think, opened up this, the a lot of CIOs' attentions to security and the importance of it. Um, although I don't think modern day security breaches are treated as harshly on C-level execs, but um, I think it would depend on the there, severity. There's a lot of wiggle room. There's a lot of finger pointing and it, it all depends. It depends on the organization and what, what their expectations are and who, who's in charge. Um, but yeah, lawsuits are generally not a positive thing for any organization and yeah. negligence, if that can be proved in a lawsuit can be pretty, pretty devastating for class yeah. action suits and et cetera. So I always, 
always work with legal teams and try to understand what is what is a reasonable amount of security and then try my best to make sure we have that. Well, I think that's when I when I mentioned you were being pragmatic. I remember working with you, and one of the things you mentioned is that if you want total security, just shut down the business and pack everything up. Um, but then short of that, let's be pragmatic and come up with things. So what's your philosophy kind of around what level of security is enough security? Well, there's a few ways to look at that. And one of them is that old camping analogy that like, I don't need to outrun the bear. I just need to outrun you. <laughs> so if I have more controls in place and I am a harder target than my neighbor, then probably the limited pool of bad guys is going to go and mess with my neighbor instead of me. So I guess we could call that like the above average sort of plan. Mm -hmm. But through my career, things have gotten a lot better in that there are several standards now that are widely available and well regarded that give you a checklist of things you should be doing. And good ones are even ranked by maturity. So if you are a startup that doesn't have a lot of sensitive data and doesn't have a lot of digital assets, then you need, you know, a low level of security where if you're a international bank or an airline or a government, you need more security and you need to add in these, these extra check boxes on, on your assessment and the SIS controls are great. The NIST cybersecurity framework is great. And PCI DSS is also great. And each of them has, depending how you look at it, between 100 and like 400 different checkboxes that you could attempt to check off. So the general guidance is, it is out there. Often it's just putting time and money into following that guidance and as people who work in software, we know it's hard to get time and money to do anything other than getting a product out the door. So, but you also need, in my opinion, security is part of customer service and it's part of quality assurance as well. Like you can't say that you have a quality product if you don't also have a secure product. And I'm, I look at my job as serving my customers by protecting their sensitive information they've trusted us with. That's a great point. And luckily it feels like customers are becoming more aware of that, or at least more sensitive. Cause I do recall back yeah. in the Blackberry days, Blackberry tried to kind of base everything on we're the most secure. And from a business perspective, that didn't take him a you know, far, but it's, I, th I would venture to guess that nowadays the similar play might be more worthwhile, um, with how much security uh, attention there is on everything. Definitely. And do you know what BlackBerry is doing right now? Um, I remember there. last time I looked into it, they were doing a lot of um, enterprise security threat modeling yeah, uh, detection. They, stuff I, I and... don't believe they're making handsets, but they have a full suite of cybersecurity consulting right. going on. So they've pivoted their business to that as well. You know, I am a BlackBerry aficionado. I haven't, I do know haven't had one for a few, a few editions of my phone now, but you, you knew me when I did did swear by them so yeah i, my, I had them for a long time touch screen skills are getting better but i'm still not <laughs> anywhere near i was with a hardware keyboard 
Yeah, I was uh, talking to my wife the other day and reminiscing about that red blinking light that you could see across the room when the notification came in and how it just nagged at you until you picked up the phone. So I definitely don't miss that. Yeah. But otherwise, it was yeah. a, a really good phones. Or even a different colored light. My current phone just has one color. And I'm like, this is a step backwards. I liked it would tell me just by looking at the <laughs> color, I could tell whether it was like my mom or someone that I actually That's have true. to pay attention to. So. That's true. Um, one of the things uh, I was going to talk to you about was uh, a lot of us, um, maybe not you necessarily, were busy in December um, patching Log4j. Um, and I want to kind of get some of your thoughts on Log4j specifically and just in more general, those types of uh, more fundamental, maybe package-related or you know, third-party software-related security incidents that seems to impact everybody, regardless of how good you follow those 100 or so checklists. Um, they seem to still crop up. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that Log4j has been a big one. I have felt bad for lots of my ex-colleagues knowing how much work they had to do to, uh, I guess, manage that incident, if we want to use correct terminology. So... The incident is a zero-day exploit is released for this Log4j or any other type of software. And once there's a zero-day exploit out there, your incident management needs to deal with that, ideally before you are impacted from an exploit. So, yeah, a lot of people, I'm sure, were scrambling. And I can imagine some places I used to work and just any average company not even knowing if they need to scramble, right? Like, do you have Log4j running in any applications on your system at home? Like your, your home router might even be running it, but you don't know. And as companies that rely on technology grow and the technology grows, it becomes... Not impossible, but difficult to keep track of what what is actually running on your systems. And and this is a library included in other software. So there are thousands of software packages that have this library in it. And according to my brief research here, actually, eight eight percent of the libraries on Java Maven, it's like a library repo. Eight percent of them have a vulnerable log for J the vulnerable log4j library included in that library because libraries can cascade and contain other libraries and other packages so um i think why it was so significant is because almost inherently it's tied to apache web server and almost inherently apache web servers are exposed on the internet to the entire world so the pool of attackers is as big as it can be where if you're running the same vulnerable application inside your network boundary, well, if your attack pool is just people who are also inside your network boundary. But because it's externally exposed almost inherently, it was a big deal that requires quick action. So I'm sure a lot of people just turned their servers off until they could figure out how to safely turn them back on. And then other people just left theirs online and possibly got exploited. Um, on these big exploits, actually, there are companies that will put out uh, 
kind of a script you can run to see if you've been compromised. So there are indicators of compromise, IOCs. And the last one we dealt with was uh, Exchange, Microsoft Exchange, their email platform, again, often publicly exposed. It had a, a vulnerability that people were exploiting. So Microsoft provided a script. Actually, it might not even then Microsoft. Somebody provided a script that gave you good assurance that if you didn't find any of these indicators of compromise or the script didn't, then you had not been exploited. But if a certain config file exists or some registry key or who knows, basically a fingerprint of the attack, if it finds those fingerprints, it'll alert you that, yeah, your system has been compromised and you might have other malware or other backdoors there now that you should go and attend to. So. Um, but overall, so when I, with my students, I, the first few days of class, we just nail down all the important terminology, like the fundamentals of security. And then from there on, there's any number of actual security incidents that I encourage them to look at and analyze using the correct terminology. So this case is, uh, it's an untrusted input problem. So almost all applications have this problem. And if you haven't attended to the problem, you could also suffer the same way that Log4j was. That you send some input to this application, which is usually a web application or a website. And that input gets passed to this Log4j library. And that library goes and does something that you don't want it to. And you may not even know that this library is capable of doing that because you didn't read the manual or that functionality is just hidden in there. And there was a case like five or six years ago that reminds me of this one that I, I did a little research project on at that time. And it was the same thing. It was Apache and in this case, the bash shell, which is a command line on Linux, and you could send web requests to the Apache server, which was exposed to the whole world. And these requests would then get passed to bash and it would execute them. Basically from the web, you are telling the server what internal commands it should run. And log4j is basically doing the same thing. It's slightly more complicated than Shellshock. But same thing, I can send something, some input to some endpoint that's available to me. And ideally that input would just be thrown in the garbage because it's not a valid, it's not valid input, but it's not thrown in the garbage. It's passed on to some other guy who then trips over it and breaks his arm. In this case, breaking your arm is I can call out to another server and I can download a malicious package back to this server I'm hacking, and then that server will execute that package, even though it's never seen that package before. The uh, the trust model there is broken, that it, because it's seemingly an internal request, it's like, okay, this, this must be fine, but it's actually an external request being pushed through Apache into this library, which then goes and does 
and I, I hesitate to say things that it shouldn't because maybe it should do this in some cases, but in most cases, currently it's doing things it shouldn't because someone else is controlling it, not you. So from the point of view of the attacker, it's doing exactly what it should do. And from your point of view, it's not. What's um, scary about one, some of these, these, uh, vulnerabilities that you just mentioned with shell shock and with log 4j um you know i think as developers you're always thinking about input validation before you store it but in these cases there's a lot of times input validation while you're processing the data or even perhaps before you your the data is even reach your application right? right like yeah yeah, yeah. so the... how does how does somebody go about but you know if you're developing and you're I mean, the reason we all use packages is because it makes development faster, right? So I don't have to go and, you know, build a you know, a logging module all by myself. And a lot of times that comes with, well, it's well tested, it's open source. Um, so most likely the quality is going to be better than what I write myself, uh, given that some group of folks have worked on this. Uh, but that doesn't always turn out to be true, as is the case with here. Yeah, man. Many eyes do often bring more security, but um, yeah, so as, as you say, rolling your own is never a good idea. Like something like logging, maybe you could be successful, but as far as people rolling their own encryption or authentication or session management, just, just don't. Like it's, you're going to screw it up and it's probably going to have a poor outcome for you. So in those cases, you want to use standard libraries that are well-known, well-reviewed, but even those we've seen have bugs somewhere. Like these are millions of lines of code and they're difficult difficult to figure out everything it does. And this, this is in the good case where someone hasn't maliciously tampered with code trying to get a backdoor or something bad in there. These are, these two cases were just like, oh, this, we never really realized this could happen, but there was no malicious intent on either of them. So is it a matter um, of you reacting? But to answer your question, if there is oh. one universal thing, I would advise, and I, this all falls under web application firewalls, really that that is what you would go and buy or subscribe to. But if you think about your web app, there are going to be various functions on that web app, and I'm going to call them with get or puts or, sorry, you know, post or whatever whatever communication technology we have decided to use for this application, I know what those look like. I know what someone calling a function with certain parameters looks like. And I also know what requests I'm receiving. So if I see a request that doesn't look like this one that I'm expecting, just like ignore it. Like in the same principle that, you know, nine out of your 10 emails are just spam. And you just, as soon as you identify it spam, it ceases to become something you process. And you're, in this case, I think humans are better. Your brain can do that better than a computer can because it will, it'll make more mistakes. Some people selling anti-spam solutions might argue with me there, but in that line, I would encourage much more whitelisting of things and that is a charged term but allow list you know allow this web request 
to be processed. If the request does not match this pattern, it's junk, I don't care about it. The issue here with something like log4j, you might still want to log that request, right? Even though it's junk, you're like, maybe I should just keep track of this junk to see what's going on. Well, the problem is the logging engine was the thing being exploited. So I go and log this junk, and now that logging engine gets exploited and goes and does does stuff in the background. But, you know, that's something we could anticipate as well. So a good tool to make your website much more secure is a web application firewall that that knows what your website is expecting to see and just ignores everything else. And then hopefully that WAF doesn't have a vulnerable component like log4j installed that has excessive permissions to other systems on the inside of your, your boundary. But um, yeah, input validation. And again, you say like there are so many places in an app. Ideally, this is like a framework sort of thing or this is an infrastructure tool that is decoupled from applications. And then you might have specific app level rules that are specific to apps. But I recommend, again, keep, keep that security framework separate from the actual application development and then force the security developers to work with it, right? Like they won't be able to use their app without getting through this WAF, so they need to code their app in a way that is going to work well with that as well. So if I'm, you know, I guess there's this thread that I'm finding here is, you know, although, you know, you do your best to protect against these security vulnerabilities, really they end up exercising your processes that you should have already had in place and exercising your architecture that should have already been in place. Is that a right way of thinking about it? Is that if you had done those things properly, you can mitigate faster or perhaps mitigate impact. I, yeah, I, ideally you're not even vulnerable, right? So in this, in Shellshock and in Log4j, I would send a web request, which would be to do something. And somewhere in that web request is this malicious exploit string. And the web servers will take this web request and they will do what they're supposed to do. And somewhere in it, they'll find this string. And that string tells the computer to do something that is a security problem. I'm saying the web app should never receive that request. A web app firewall goes in between the client, the browser, the hacker making the request and the application that receives the request. And if your request isn't exactly what you want, you just turf it. And I, I see this on my website. I get, I log all the requests just to a text file. And I see tons of requests for applications and things that don't exist on my server. And these are bad guys out there trying to see if that exists on my server. And I, I don't have a web app firewall, but if I did, those requests wouldn't even make it to my web server because my web app firewall would say, okay, I want these requests and anything else can go pound sand. 
And that, to me, that's more a framework architectural setup than actually in the application. And you can do the same thing in an application. And again, I, I would try to have specific library in the app that's going to handle that. Like, don't, don't just have it in the classes. Don't have your input validation at each input field. I recommend you have a decoupled framework where it's much easier to see what you are actually validating and then passing on to the actual functions that will then act on that input. Is part of the separation of like the web app, like the reason you recommend the firewall does a lot of that is so that even if it does, for example, lock for, had a lock4j vulnerability, the only data that's on there is other traffic that's coming in, not necessarily your application data that's processed. Is that part of the reason? Because I mean, ultimately your WAF will be susceptible to the vulnerabilities as well, right? Yeah, but WAFs are simpler. So a, a firewall is not going to have a database connection to all of your customer info. Right. Or is not going to be able to make make requests to other systems and then run software or whatever. It, it's a security tool. So if you have a good yeah. one, it, it should be secure. So generally, it won't be vulnerable to these same things that web servers are. And, and these two cases, Shellshock and Log4J, were pretty substantial. And yeah, companies that had a good WAF and a good input input validation setup, they wouldn't have had to worry much about these issues because they're, they may exist on the other side of that firewall, but that firewall is going to block any, any malicious request. And beyond malicious, like I've worked at companies where we, we don't even know all of the entry points into the system, like all the different URLs that you could go to, that to understand that you would have to review every config file of every web server and like it can be almost too much to do. So how we figured this out, we're like, but we can't have all these endpoints just sitting around. We don't know if they're secure or not. So we set up a WAF. We used our load balancer. We were basically doing the same thing. And we just recorded every single URL that was requested over a couple months. And that gave us our whitelist. So we're like, okay, all these URLs are being used for something. Let's just cut it off there. So even if there is another URL that possibly has tons of customer data sitting there without a password, you can't get to it anymore. Again, because we've whitelisted, we've had a, we have an allow list of things you are allowed to make a request to, and anything else, it just you can't you can't make a request there. And that that bumped our security up like several several notches in whatever scale we were using then, because we just if if you don't know what you have, it is hard to secure it. So. The one way you can make a big game there is figure out what what you need and then just shut everything else off. So that that is that is my recommendation there. More more web app firewalls will make the world more secure. But you need to configure them correctly too. If you're buying an expensive security solution and then not paying attention to how it's configured and not testing whether it's configured the way you think it is, that you can you can have some problems too. So, 
with regards to you know WAF configuring and allow listing these things, um, I'm assuming you need to have some sort of audit mechanism that continuously audits your systems to make sure that they are staying within those boundaries that you've set up. Is that is that something that I guess you do in your as part of your security? kind of program is to audit to make sure the developers then don't end up going around these firewalls and actually have firewalls in place or, um, you know, the firewalls yeah, are if, configured if correctly so they don't drift. If you, if you don't have good change control, you're going to have problems exactly like that. Developers are going to just bypass your security architecture and security framework because they can and they need to get their job done and get their product out the door and unless there is good governance and good frameworks and it probably wasn't really clear what i was saying earlier but like make it so that the developers have to go through this like you cannot get a request from the internet to your application without transiting this framework that is going to decide whether it's going to allow or drop that request before it gets to you Right. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, in the wake of the Log4j, a couple of the articles that I saw online were all around, I mean, they were sensationalized, but a lot of it were around uh, not using open source software and why open source software is bad. And um, I personally don't agree with that, but I just want to kind of get your take on it as somebody who's security minded. Yeah, I, I would assume those articles were written by companies that have an alternative product to some open source software that is commonly used. Um, I, I don't want to come down hard on one side or the other of this decision um, or of this topic. Open source has pros and cons, but as far as many eyes finding problems yeah open source has a huge advantage there over proprietary close or let's just say closed source products where only certain people know what the source code looks like so if you are one of those privileged people that works at that company you can verify at a source code level whether this application is secure where the general public can't what what frequently happens though with these closed source products is they get patched. Like let's just use Windows and as, as an example, but there are many, many other closed source products we could talk about. But Windows being extremely common, we see this pattern over and over again. On Patch Tuesday, they release a slew of patches to various Windows components and people can reverse engineer those. So they will take that patch and they will decompile it and see what what is this patching? What, what changes is this making to the windows that I currently have? And through that, they will learn about all these vulnerabilities that exist. And people, People sometimes drag their heels on patching, and that is not a good idea because once this patch is released, until you apply it, your computer is vulnerable to whatever's in there. But not just that, people know what is in there and what your computer is vulnerable to now. So 
same thing will happen in open source if somebody releases, hey, I found this vulnerability in Log4j and I can do this thing. I, I think the Log4j one started with people playing Minecraft. And people playing Minecraft with each other figured out how they could RCE, remote code execution. It's a big buzzword and big problem in cybersecurity. If you see an RCE event, that's something you need to pay attention to. And they were just doing that, basically just messing with each other playing Minecraft, but taking control of each other's Minecraft servers and executing whatever they wanted. And then that kind of came into the public eye as being like, oh, wow, this is a big problem. Yep. Because again, millions of computers run Log4j and are also exposed to the internet. So. That's right. So we spend a lot of time on Log4j, but uh, I mean, one of the nice things uh, I, I get to find out when I talk to you is about all the other security things that have happened in the in the real world. Um, and uh, do you have any uh, security kind of events or incidents that you could share that you thought would be interesting, you know, whether recently or in the past few years? Yeah, we, we've had a very exciting week as far as cybersecurity goes. So we look at motivations, like why does cybercrime and why do cybersecurity incidents occur? And there's a very limited set of threat actors, we call them, and each of them have different motivations. And one of those motivations is political. People wanting to advance a political ideology or denounce a differing political ideology and currently ukraine and russia are rattling sabers i believe is the term and 70 ukraine government websites were taken offline last week in a cyber attack that is being uh, blamed on russian state-sponsored political cyber uh, cyber army, basically. So, what did they say? Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Cabinet Minister's website, the Security and Defense Council website, and I saw the error message, but I don't understand the language, but it basically said, be afraid and wait for the worst. And they had Ukrainian, Polish, and Russian translations of this. You can find a screenshot of it online quite easily. Um... If you want to talk about trends, too, interestingly, uh, Deputy Secretary of the NSDC, Sergei Demedyuk from Ukraine, said uh, third-party companies' administration rights were used in the attack. And we've seen this a couple times recently where a company that provides IT service to other companies and therefore has some, some way to get across a trust boundary, that service company is compromised. And in doing so, you piggyback a compromise of a thousand different companies that they have service contracts with. So it looks like that's what happened here. The Ukrainian government has a contract with a company that manages its websites and that company was compromised, and then the hackers were then able to go and compromise 70 different websites for the Ukrainian government. And then, a couple days later, 
the same day that the Canadian Internet Security Agency put up a warning to all of us Canadians to be on alert for heightened cyber attacks coming from this conflict, our Global Affairs Canada website got hacked and was taken offline and still several days later has been impacted. There are some services they haven't restored yet. Is that so, the same uh, same people or I guess hard to tell? You know, if you're good at this stuff, you, that answer is really hard to prove, right? There are VPNs and Tor and maybe I'm going to get a backdoor on your computer and it's going to appear to the Canadian government that you hacked their website because all they know is that this these web requests were being sent from this IP address, which is currently held by this person. But was it you or was it just some software running on your computer that is relaying commands from some other computer somewhere else? So I don't think anyone has pointed any fingers, but I don't think anyone really needs to. I think it's pretty clear what, what has happened here. So, um, yeah, so full-on hot cyber warfare is occurring between our country and other countries and other countries and that same country. And uh, they are they are well-equipped for this. So I hope we are too. So beyond, um, if you're not involved in uh, political controversy there, um, whether, you know, are you still affected or... How does like the average citizen get impacted when something like this goes down? If you're a Canadian abroad who needs services from Global Affairs Canada, you might not be able to get those services right now. That right. I would think is the out the outcome, but imagine imagine they took down the Ontario Health Network or something. So patient records were unavailable for half of the people who live in our country. Right. So right. not many of us use the global affairs, Canada website day to day, but pretty much everybody needs healthcare information day to day, needs their bank account day to day, needs their electricity day to day. And I would guess the global affairs website is more secure than some of those systems. So, in that case, yes. do we see a lot of infrastructure attacks, I would assume, on like any, pretty in, much any infrastructure that has Ukraine, computers? Yeah, in the Ukraine, I'm not sure if it happened this time, but the previous time, about five years ago, yes, they were shutting down power plants. They were doing all sorts of like physical, maybe not damage, but physical impacts that you you would notice sitting at home with no electricity. Uh, Got it. Those are quite rare, actually, where a cyber attack has a physical effect, but they they have happened. And the most famous one, actually, is one of the things that got me into cybersecurity. Uh, my, my first degree was in international relations, so I've always been interested in global politics and strategic studies and espionage and such. And the first digital to physical malware was called Stuxnet and it was targeting Iran's nuclear program and estimated they set it back, I think maybe 30 years by dropping a USB key in the parking lot and some 
some nuclear physicist who didn't take enough cybersecurity training goes inside and plugs that USB key in, and then that had special code on it that was designed to damage, physically damage the centrifuges that were processing nuclear material. And yeah, set, set Iran back, I believe, several decades as far as their production of nuclear weapons ambitions. And yeah, that was a very specific targeted one against like a semi-military target, but these other ones are going after civilian targets and just trying to cause damage, trying to disrupt day-to-day -day life for people. And to what end? I don't know, to prove that life would be better under one regime than another regime, I guess. So would so, you say that if you work at a company as a developer, um, I guess going back to your earlier analogy of a startup, right? And your risk of being targeted is probably a lot less than if you're a big retailer that has millions of dollars transacting or can affect the lives of a lot of people. Yeah. It, but if don't discount a startup. If you're a startup who has, I don't know, a billion dollars of crypto assets under your control, you should probably be taking cybersecurity pretty seriously. Even though you may have only existed for the past five years, you have a lot of assets. So I mentioned earlier I do risk management, and one of the equations I give my students is risk equals asset times threat times vulnerability. So if you have assets, there are almost certainly threats that want to steal or destroy those assets. So the remaining part of the equation is, are there vulnerabilities that they can exploit to destroy those assets? Because I don't, I don't think we're ever going to live in a world where there aren't threats. So really, the two parts of that equation you can address are assets and vulnerabilities. Often companies can address assets. If you have 30 years of customer records sitting in a database and you only need the last six months, well, take... Mm -hmm. 29.5 years of that data and archive it somewhere where it's not as exploitable as keeping it on a database server that's only one hop away from being on the internet. But a lot of companies need these assets. Like, you can't get rid of it. It's part of your business model. So you need to attend to threats, which really means understanding which threats might come after you. And then figure out, are you vulnerable to any of those threats being successful? And yeah, the other current event I wanted to talk about was crypto.com. It's one of the bigger crypto exchange startups. And they had a big hack last week to the tune of it started as $30 million and now it's up to $300 million. And again, closed, closed source. We don't really know, but. Uh. I wasn't aware of that until you mentioned it earlier uh, before we started the podcast. Could you give me a little background about what happened there? Yeah, so crypto.com, I I haven't seen much of it up here, but it, apparently they, they're quite big in the States. They own or they have the naming rights for the Los Angeles arena where the Lakers play, I believe. And they revealed, I think it was first revealed maybe from customers, but currently in the news it said that five, 400 some, 500 different customer accounts had had cryptocurrency stolen from them 
and all these accounts had multi-factor authentication. And people have been like, oh, well, I had multi-factor authentication. I must be secure. How could this possibly happen? And I guess they didn't implement multi-factor authentication very well. And I mentioned before with WAFs, you've got a security tool, but like that's not, it's not plug and play or plug and chug as they would say in, in the garage. You need to actually understand what this device can and can't do and then coordinate that against your goals of what you need it to do. Um, Did they say specifically what was wrong with the 2FA implementation or? No, but some, I wish companies were more forthcoming with this stuff and I understand why they don't want to be, but like, we need to learn, we need to learn these lessons and I'd rather some other company learns it and then shares that lesson with me than me having to learn it myself and me having $300 million stolen. But we don't always know, but through my class and understanding terminology and just looking at certain things, I know that all customers had their multi-factor tokens revoked and they all had to log in again. So that to me means that it was more a session management problem than an authentication problem. So multi-factor authentication is good for proving that you are you at that moment when, when we do this multi-factor transaction. Someone is claiming to be Rasam, and me as the server, I'm going to push back and say, okay, prove it. And you're going to send me your password. And I'm like, okay, that's the right password, but people steal passwords all the time. People share passwords. I'm, I'm still not impressed. So I'm going to push back. Okay. Now send me that, that code I just texted to you or approve this push message or give me the code that your generator, your OTP generator is showing right now, something like that. So that's the multi-factor I've, I've challenged you twice to prove that you are authentic and legitimate. So what happens after that? And again, have, have we configured this? So the fact that they had to revoke tokens makes me think that's where they screwed up. And if, if you're going through this multi-factor handshake, all this effort to make sure that Rasam is Rasam at this moment, we should expire that pretty quickly too, right? Like it doesn't take long for someone else to hop on your computer. And now I'm not talking to Rasam anymore, mm -hmm. but as a web server, I don't know the difference. So after that initial handshake, I can say, okay, well, we're good for the next five minutes. And so long as we're still communicating, we can extend it five minute chunks endlessly. But as soon as you stop talking to me, for five minutes, I'm going to assume you've gone to the bathroom and I'm just going to kill that session. So I, I don't need to revoke those sessions because there are no sessions that are valid after five minutes of inactivity. And we see this all the time with web apps being secure, especially when you go and use a web app on a public computer, like at the library or your friend's computer or your spouse's computer or anything, right? That's one of the reasons incognito mode exists, but even, even that, if you're not really sure how it works, you might leave a session 
sitting around that someone else can take advantage of. So beyond authentication, there are more steps you need to make sure that it remains authentic. So I'm guessing people were able to steal tokens in some manner. They might have got them out of a server database, or they might have gone to 400 different people's computers and tricked them somehow into getting those tokens off of their computers. And then they replayed them to Crypto.com, who accepted them as valid because they weren't being careful enough to have secure tokens post-authentication. Right. There's other problems like... If you don't change the token, like an old, old, old AppSec thing is you need to change the token between pre-authentication and post-authentication because there's a whole slew of tricks where I, I give you a token basically and it's unauthenticated and then you go and log in. And if I don't change the token once you log in, the hacker who gave you that token originally can now log in as you or is logged in as you because he knows, he knows your session token, and it's not protected in other ways. So. Right. Assuming that's what happened, but it's one of the first times I've seen a breach where they did have multi-factor, but the multi-factor did not protect them from a $300 million breach. Right. It does remind me of uh, the Ubiquity um, hack, like I think it was a year ago. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. Ubiquity, no. They're, so Ubiquity is a is a network provider, like network solution provider. So they do firewalls, switches, etc. And they have an online management, so you could get a single pane of glass to manage like multiple sites. And what seems like happened in their case is they had an internal breach where an internal employee had access to and stole credentials. But what what was interesting with that one is they had access to the two factor seeds. Like the TOTP seeds, well, I, I'm assuming they use TOTP, but they had access to the seeds, and then therefore they essentially revoked, or they asked everybody to even go and remove two-factor authentication, and then re-enable two-factor authentication. So you're essentially resetting a brand new seed, which was, I think, the first time I've ever seen that. But it has a lot of, mm -hmm. it sounds mm -hmm. very similar to this case, uh, perhaps mm -hmm. on the same root that, cause, but that, it shows you two-factor authentication. Absolutely, is, not... is, is plausible. Yep. Um... But so I'm going to guess that's not what happened at crypto because that wouldn't require me to revoke sessions. True. Right. I could just, if I knew the seed, I could just start a new session. Right. Right. I also need your password, but passwords, I, I have many presentations demonstrating that passwords are incredibly easy to steal or guess or brute force. So, but with that, I could just start a new session. So in this one, they had to revoke all the existing sessions, which made me think that their existing sessions were far too long-lived and weren't pinned to an endpoint. So in mobile banking, if you log in to your bank website on computer A and you copy your session token over to computer B, when you send that to the bank on computer B, the bank is going to be like, this is not the same computer that I gave this session token to. So right. something is fishy here and I'm just going to invalidate this session token. And then if you go back to computer A, you'd need to log in again. 
Right. So I'm thinking it's more something like that, and they didn't have that endpoint protection where I'm I'm able to take a token from your computer and then put it on my computer, and then all of a sudden I am you, and they don't have further checks in place to determine whether that's true or not. Right. So one of the things so... I tend to do for at least my own security, or I think it's my own security, but I'll, I'll sanity check it with you here, is if I'm given an option, for example, to log in with my Google account, you know, I tend to use that option when I'm using third-party sites because in my mind, Google probably has implemented it way better than some website that I don't really know. Or perhaps as a startup who's trying to be nimble and quick and maybe took a couple of shortcuts in, in implementing their multi-factor authentication. Is that a right... Is that a right way of thinking about it? Yeah, that that's a good way to think of it. When I so I, I have several accounts that are federated with my Google, which has multi-factor, and the the big benefit to federation there that you're not most people won't think about again. How how easy is it to steal a password from somebody? When I use Google to authenticate to GitHub. There's no password being typed in. So nobody can see me type it on my keyboard. Nobody can have malware on my computer that will capture those keystrokes once I send them to my computer. Nobody can use an antenna and get the keystrokes off of the wire between my keyboard and the computer, which can be done. That password is never used. We're instead using token-based authentication. So. You need to enter your password to Google, but minimizing how often you take your password out of your brain and put it into the keyboard, into the computer, that's definitely a big security game. And tying into that is also a password manager. So the times I won't use federation, I won't give a site access to my Gmails when they don't really need it. I can just register some BS credentials at some website with my spam email address and who cares. In that case though, I will just use my browser password manager and get it to generate a password for me. And then it sets right. that password on the site and then stores it in its password memory. And in those cases, again, the password isn't being typed. The browser is taking that password out of its data store and passing it through to the website. It's not at my fingertips or on the keyboard or on the wire in between. And in some cases, I honestly don't know what the password is. So even if some, some spies captured me and pulled out my fingernails so they could get access to my <laughs> SoundCloud or whatever, I don't know what the password is. You would need to access my Google data store using the authentication that it provides to get that information. So yeah, I, I like those, and I, th I think you're on, on the right track there. And the downside to using those is that GitHub might have access to information I've stored at Google that it doesn't need or I don't want it to have. But right. the, way, the way they have configured that, I don't have any choice. My choice is to use it or not use it. And so often I have a second Gmail that I can just use for authentication and services like that. I, I don't keep much private information at these places anyways, but um, yep. you need to pay attention. If, if a site like GitHub, they originally they would just ask for permission 
And over the years, we've seen these permission requests get more and more granular, which is a very good thing. So yeah. paying attention to that is also a good thing. And if an application is asking for access to all of my emails, or an Android app is asking for access to all of the files on the phone, you should be wary and understand, do, do I need this app that has that access? Right. And malicious or not, that could could be a big problem. Um, yeah, U Ubiquity is one of, like, Mandiant is another one. There have been a few cases lately where these are all supply chain attacks now, where the bad guys go and attack your supplier. And th this happened with Target, actually. That, that's how Target got breached. And they went from sending a phishing email to Target's air conditioning service guy that compromised his computer, which then gave the bad guys access to the target vendor website with that guy's credentials. And then somehow from there, they were able to put malware on every single cash register across the country. <laughs> so <laughs> they did a few things wrong, but where it started was they had a, had a vendor who had access and that vendor didn't have as much security as he or she needed. And that just started the ball rolling. And it's usually exploit upon exploit upon exploit to deliver some some impact, we would call it. But uh, yeah, there, there have been several cases now where thousands of companies have been compromised because one company got compromised. And they're generally IT service companies like Ubiquity or... Right. I, I don't want to talk trash about companies that haven't actually been breached. I sense the bot coming in there. <laughs> um, I do want to ask you some things that, you know, development managers can do um, to help improve security. But before that, is there any other vulnerabilities or threats that you think are emerging or have happened that you think would be that you want to share? There's a really troubling one that has, it's been on my radar for several years now. And the past couple of years, it's gotten a lot more attention because, uh, because Jeff Bezos wound up in the tabloids having an affair on his wife. This was publicly revealed by, I think in a British tabloid, it doesn't matter, but somehow somebody got a hold of Jeff Bezos's text messages to his mistress and published those. And I am sure you're not, <laughs> this is not a valid concern for you, but if that happened to you, you would be pretty annoyed, but you probably wouldn't be able to do much about it. Right? Well, Jeff Bezos is one of the richest people in the world. So he has the resources to do something about it. And he did. And he figured out that he had got malware on his phone and that, Probably it was delivered by uh, someone in Saudi Arabia. And this, again, was two exploits chained together. And the first, the first vulnerability was in WhatsApp. And what it had was a remote code execution vulnerability in that I can remotely tell this app to execute code. The scary one with this is that WhatsApp is exposed externally, thinking from the point of view of your mobile device. 
it is exposed on the internet. So anyone else with an internet connection can communicate with the WhatsApp app on your phone. So presumably a Saudi did that, initiated this communication. Bezos doesn't have to answer the phone. He doesn't have to do anything. He might not have even known this happened. But I have now sent some input to WhatsApp that will process it. And what it processed was another exploit for iOS. So RCE, Remote Code Execution, is a nasty acronym. Another one is EOP, Elevation of Privilege or Escalation of Privilege. So iOS on the iPhone, that version, had an EOP vulnerability. So I'm able to get WhatsApp to send a message to the operating system and that message is another exploit, which then basically is a rootkit or jailbreak for that iPhone. And then the next thing that happens is this, it's called Pegasus. This malware was installed and it is complete spyware. So everything that's happening on your phone is being transmitted to the hacker who can see your text messages, see your voice calls, all your browsing, everything, a, root, a rootkit has as much power as the CPU and kernel itself. So that was concerning, and this malware is now fairly well known and has been found on, I think, up to thousands of devices now. And this malware is brokered by a company called the NSO Group that hires hackers to find flaws in apps like WhatsApp and in operating systems like iOS and develop exploits that can then be used for espionage, terrorism, harassment, blackmail, all, all the usual the usual suspects of cybercrime. But um, controversially, this is a commercial enterprise that sells this technology to interested parties. And those interested parties are generally governments that aren't great with their human rights record. And it is believed that this software has directly led to several murders and several other nasty incidents around the world. So something to keep an eye on. And as we take on more and more technology and put more and more of our lives into our devices, we are more and more susceptible to these sorts of things. And I think it's particularly nasty that there are companies out there profiting off of it. And the people who go and work there, what they will tell you is that Facebook and Apple and Microsoft are not paying enough in bug bounties. So when these researchers find these problems economically for them, they'll go sell it to the NSO group because Apple's only paying 1%, 10%, 50% of whatever NSO group is paying. So then after hacking WhatsApp, Facebook kicked everyone from NSO group off of Facebook and WhatsApp and Instagram. <laughs> and then all these developers from NSO group were complaining like, Oh, I got kicked off Instagram. It's like, well, <laughs> maybe you shouldn't be. 
That's so funny. Maybe your career shouldn't be trying to exploit that company. I'm, I'm pretty sure that is not in their terms of service. <laughs> They're perfectly within their right to kick you and your family off of their app. So, but really interesting story and really proud. It's being pushed by a Canadian group at the University of Toronto. They're called Citizen Lab, and their their mission is just to. Exp- Bose technology and human rights intersections. And this is, uh, they are where I first learned of this and they've done some great research and have really, really excellent, uh, excellent stuff at their website. If anyone wants to check it out, I highly What was their name? They're called the Citizen Lab and they operate out of the Monk School of Business at the University of Toronto. Pretty I'll easy check to it find, out. and if if you Google Pegasus NSO group, you'll you'll quickly come to Citizen Lab. But Citizen Lab are the ones who are on our side, the people that yeah. that I think are are doing what people should do, and then NSO are the bad guys in this case. But yeah, maybe I don't well, have the full picture, and I'm just being super subjective here, and we should stop throwing throwing shade on certain companies, <laughs> but. Um, and yeah, the Bezos story, like that whole thing is interesting because that is just salacious gossip, which we all love too. And when when you got a lot of money to fight back, I was like, yeah, cool. This is this is interesting. Well, this was interesting about it is that somebody was able to get to the bottom of it, right? Because if yeah, you're exploited, that, that never happens. But yeah, exactly. Um, he has endless resources. Um, and then one more, just quick. Sure. Uh, Mage cart. If anyone's heard of Magecart, this I'm sure some e-commerce people will be checking out this podcast. And this is another supply chain attack, but it's it's more a digital supply chain. But uh, this Magecart group, they have been going to e-commerce sites, and you know, there's always warning at gas stations like card skimmers. They'll put an extra thing on so they can read your card data when you swipe it through there, or all like off-brand ATMs and stuff. This happens in other countries a lot more too. So these guys have figured out, yeah, that's a great scam. We can get credit card numbers, but wouldn't it be better if we could grab them off the internet where these are just packets going back and forth? So they've started coming up with JavaScript card skimmers and then installing that on websites, which include British Airways, Ticketmaster, Newegg, the Atlanta Hawks, Forbes Magazine, wow. WordPress, Recaptchas, uh, Fav icons, even you have a little icon up in the browser corner. They figured out a way to inject it into there. But basically, they're they'll either hack your site and put this malicious JavaScript in your site's code. Or better, they will hack a third party and switch their JavaScript out for their the malicious JavaScript. And then you, maybe it's an ad, maybe it's a CAPTCHA, maybe it's any third-party JavaScript that you include in your site, which I guarantee you have 10 to 20 of on any page, on any site, well, that has as much power as the local browser. And as you type a credit card number into that page, this malicious JavaScript is going to make a copy of that credit card and exfiltrate it. 
to the bad guys. Jesus. So. This has been on the rise. We've seen a few fairly large-scale incidents where they will go and corrupt some third party and then get this nasty JavaScript pushed down to hundreds or thousands of websites and then start stealing hundreds and thousands of credit card numbers from each one. And on that one, again, it's in input validation, right? Like, is this JavaScript what I want it to be? Is this JavaScript what I'm expecting? And if the answer is no, then don't don't process it. But third third party JavaScript is just so easy to point your system at some other JavaScript that you have no control over, and then you'll include it in your page, and it has the same amount of permission as your own JavaScript that you're serving from your servers. That's so. scary because. I mean, it doesn't have to be a cart either, right? I, I I can imagine this being something that lands, you know, you put in your personal health information, it could probably skim it, any of those things. Yeah. And JavaScript That's... can read and write anything in that web page. It, yeah. it has total power over what you're seeing on your screen. It's it's also used in bank fraud to trick people into thinking they have more money than they actually do. Like that, you don't even need JavaScript for that. You can just change the HTML, but yeah, like these... JavaScript can do anything and that's should terrifying. be handled very, <laughs> very carefully. And it, another one, it, it runs locally, right? So a, an easy JavaScript hack, you come to my website, so long as you have my website open, I am using your CPU to mine Bitcoins for me. Like that's, mm. that's simple JavaScript. And whether someone has put that on there maliciously as a hacker or the website is just doing it because they're like, well... I may as well use this guy's CPU to mine some bitcoins while he's looking at my web page. <laughs> oh, man. There's nothing stopping that from happening other than me noticing my task manager is through the roof because I'm looking at a specific are getting webpage. more creative by the day. And... Yeah. Wow. So, di distinguishing server-side and client-side, like that that's one of the themes of my course because obviously there's different security concerns on both sides. And yeah, JavaScript is a client-side language, so the, the processing of the scripts occurs on the browser computer, not the server computer. So you can right. offload a lot of processing to a lot of computers via that. So, so yeah, uh, those uh, are kind of the trends I've been seeing. <laughs> and That got... Pretty grim. Uh, do you have any optimism for um, kind of how people move forward? No. <laughs> <laughs> like at a, at a very specific focused level, I have optimism that people like you want to talk about this and people like you want to build applications that are secure and you're learning more about it and I'm learning more about it and the world is learning more about it. But I also think the trends of like how rapidly we're adopting technology and new technologies and how much pressure there is on tech businesses just to get it out the door, be first to market, and people's short memories of how painful it is when you do have a security incident. It's just, it's not, not an environment where I am set up to be successful. And I, I came into this career being oh man, I'm going to make such a difference and then just got <laughs> repeated lessons of how it's, it's a really tough go. 
but it there is some optimism that people out there there are some people doing a good job and you were asking for dev managers how to make things better and right I, I think we've covered a lot of it just through the discussion but um i would say if you want to make a secure app don't don't accept any input into that app and don't render or transmit any output out of that app and it's it's going to be super secure because it can't be exploited by any input and it can't leak any data through any output because it doesn't it doesn't have any input or output but i recognize that's not really realistic because the whole point of apps is to have input and output so what i recommend you do if you're starting from scratch or you're starting a security assessment is start writing down all the inputs and outputs and go as deep and as granular as you want because everything that the computer is doing can be described in those terms and i i recommend that you go source transit destination so if i'm logging in the source is my keyboard the transit is depends how low level so high level the transit is going to be tls ssl and the destination is going to be your web server so what can go wrong at the source well i could steal the password using a keylogger i could steal the password using a web camera i could steal the password lots of ways what could happen in transit well if we're using tls probably not much so that's good we'll put a little checkbox there and be like okay that that part of the flow is secure and then what happens at the server with that password? Are you maybe including it in your log4j data? Or are you handling it with a security framework and doing the right things? And just step by step, every function in the app, everything the app does, whether you're talking about moving things within memory or taking things out of memory and showing them on the screen or getting things out of a database into memory onto the screen, Developing a picture of your application, some of us call this even documentation, will really help you understand, is this app anywhere close to being secure or just leaky like uh, the Titanic? And then testing. So I want to I talk about one story. I was through my investigation of a site where the authentication was broken and a bunch of customer data was exposed without requiring any password and some customers being very upset about that rightly so i found another website where that same customer data was was also shown but you re it required a password so you had to log in and the guy who showed it to me showed me him logging in and then it shows the sensitive data i'm like okay cool we'll take a closer look at that tomorrow so he he had logged in a hundred times successfully and what he had never done is entered his password incorrectly or not entered any password at all and clicked login because if he had done either of those things he would have got all the same sensitive data as he did when he put his correct password in because i guess nobody had ever tested whether the, the negative case also holds up so with a password protected data you should have to provide the correct password to see the data and if you provide an incorrect password you don't see the data but if you're only running one of those two tests you might have a 
a huge security problem on your hands and not even know about it. So, yeah, at the most basic level that a dev manager can actually influence, good security testing and good documentation. A um, couple more bonus tips. So for every use case, there are going to be abuse cases. And for every user story, there are going to be abuser stories. And that's all threat modeling, and that that is a great activity to also reinforce the security of your application. But if you don't have this documentation, if you don't know how the application works, you can't really do the threat modeling because you don't know, you know, do I need to be worried about people stealing passwords off the network? Do I need to be worried about people stealing passwords with key loggers? Do I need to be worried about passwords at all? Because you don't know the data flows, so. The quickest right. way to get a leg up, I think, are those those few steps there. So. Yeah, I remember and, I learned about the abuser stories and the abuse cases from you uh, years ago. Um, and I've been trying to incorporate it into the development cycle because I think one thing that I find happens a lot is you always leave security reviews and things until the end of the project where right before you're about to go out and then uh, the, put the pressure on security to just sign off on it before we hit a deadline for a customer. Mm-hmm. Um, and building those things in as, you know, using some scum terminology like the definition of done where, you know what, every time we do anything to do with passwords, these are the things that we got to hit, right? These are the security checkpoints we got to hit. And the story is not done until you hit those checkpoints. That to me is such a key thing in terms of project management because you don't want to wait until the end to find these issues, but also from, you know, having security built in instead of it being a bolt-on afterthought. Yeah, no, from from the beginning, you you cannot. I would say you you can't come and talk to me early enough. As as soon as this idea is worth talking about, it's time to start talking about doing it securely. Um, like those, the user stories and use cases. Those write your test cases, right? And you want to test that this is secure as well. So yeah, the abuser stories and abuse cases. Those write the test cases as well. And a simple one is, as a user, I want to provide my password and see my sensitive data. So as an abuser, I want to provide your password and see your sensitive data. Or I want to provide no password whatsoever and see your sensitive data. So now we've got three test cases right there. And that took us 10 seconds. And I joke that my job's easy. I only need to worry about six things. And there are only six different exploits. There are many different iterations of them, but there are only six different types of exploit. And for every user story, you take a look at it, you take a look at that data flow, and then you go through that list of six things and come up with the good cases and the bad cases. And if you have enough people doing it who have a good enough understanding of the application, you can probably make something that's pretty secure. Then you just have to worry get about what, what third-party libraries have you included and what <laughs> what third-party supply chain attacks are you vulnerable to and in internal threats and et cetera. But it's, uh, you got to pay attention to a lot of things, and I think the best way to do that is start simplifying things, and I think those these last few tips are how I how I try to dumb things down, make a really big, complicated problem a little more understandable and then we can start taking bites out of it perfect and what were those six things uh or what can someone what can somebody find them 
Oh, you know them. You did the training, Rasab. You should. <laughs> Come on. Can you tell me? Six things. What are the six most important <laughs> words? So I've refined this too. I've refined it. I've done it so many times. So I'll, I'll tell our audience. There are three things that you want. And that is the CIA triad. You want confidentiality. So secrecy. You want integrity. So integrity is correctness. Like my bank account should be correct. If someone is able to change my bank account, that's an integrity problem. If somebody knows how much money is in my bank account, that's a confidentiality problem. And then the A of the triad is availability. That's denials of service. So if someone is able to take my bank account offline altogether and I can't withdraw my money to buy lunch or pay rent, that's an availability problem. So those are the three things we want. If we have confidentiality, integrity, and availability, we have security. So the next three things are, well, how do we get CIA? And we get that through access control and access control is AAA authentication. We've talked about that multi-factor, single factor, proving that you are who you claim to be. And then after that is authorization. What are you allowed to do? So I'm, I'm sure you are you, but have I restricted your privileges? Escalation of privilege is an authorization problem that you have gone from being a low level user who can only read files to being an administrator who can change files. So authorization. And then thirdly, what did you do? And that's accountability or non-repudiation. So those last three are the mechanisms. The first three are the properties and it's, what do you want and how are we going to get it? And for each, bit of a data flow, you might have confidentiality concerns, you might have integrity concerns, you might have availability concerns, you might, you probably have all three. And then how are you attending to those concerns? Well, what is your authentication mechanism? What is your authorization mechanism? And what is your accountability mechanism? And are those strong enough to give you the confidentiality you want, the integrity you want, and the availability you want? And I find this this is all kind of threat modeling and this is kind of how i've evolved from like traditional textbook threat modeling to something that you and i can actually talk about in a meeting or over dinner and actually make some headway right away because we could start yeah. just with the simple data flows very high level with these same concerns and then just boil it down and down and down and down and down until we're down at the machine code and memory level and still doing the same thing like data start somewhere, goes somewhere, end somewhere, CIA, AAA. So perfect. That is, that is my current wisdom on how to make secure systems. And I recognize it's a lot, but. No, I think that that's a good place to, uh, to, I think, end the podcast and I guess circle back and also say, have WAF allow listing. Uh, WAF was a key point I took at the beginning. <laughs> whitelist, yeah. In Validate, whitelist. So whitelist and blacklist, you know, spam is a blacklist, anti-spam. So by default, I'm going to allow everyone in the world to email me. And if I don't like that, I'm going to block them. And that works well no. for email. 
but that doesn't work well for having a secure web application, right? No. I don't want every possible request that anyone could send being processed by my server. Who knows what's going to happen when I'm doing that? I only want to process these requests that I'm actually expecting. And there are technologies that allow me to filter those out. <laughs> WAF is the most common common term for that. But we just we did it with our load balancer. You could do it with the web server itself. There's different ways to do this, but basically Perfect. keeping malicious input out of your web server or any server or any system is a good first step for sure. Awesome. Um, so, Steve, if anybody wants to get a hold of you to kind of discuss some of those things or maybe take your course, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Um, yeah, probably link, I'm on LinkedIn under Steve Overland. It should be pretty obvious. I'm connected to you on there. Um, if you just want to reach out and talk about something. And as far as the course goes, it's at the British Columbia Institute of Technology. And it's under the computer school of computing. And it's com comp 3704 and 4704 are the two security courses. So my, myself and a couple other instructors teach it a few times a year and coordinate on curriculum and generally enjoy it. It's a, it's a fun course. I've had some great feedback from some students who have really enjoyed it. So I, I will keep at that as well. Keeps me fresh. Perfect. Well, thanks for your time, Steve. Yeah, thanks for some. That's great.